Welcome to Manifold. My guest today is Professor Lyle Goldstein. Goldstein recently retired after 20 years of service on the faculty of the U.S. Naval War College. During his career there, he founded the China Maritime Studies Institute, CMSI, and has been awarded the Superior Civilian Service Medal for his achievement. He has written or edited seven books on Chinese strategy and is at work on a book-length project that examines the nature of China-Russia relations in the 21st century. He has a long-standing interest in great power politics, military competition, and security in the Pacific and Eurasia region. He's currently Director of Asia Engagement at the Washington think tank Defense Priorities, which advocates for realism and restraint in U.S. defense policy. He is also a visiting professor at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University. Goldstein earned a PhD at Princeton, an MA from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and an AB from Harvard. And he is also fluent in both Chinese and Russian. Lyle, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you on my podcast. Well, thanks, Steve. I'm, I'm really glad to join you for a discussion. Great. I'm really looking forward to it. I always try to start my guests early in their lives. So I'd like to just talk a little bit about your early life, your childhood, where you grew up, your education. Tell me a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's nice of you to ask. I think that's, that's a novel. And, and, and I, I actually think you're, you're onto something, you know, we're all those are our formative years when we're children. And in my case, I, it did have a lot to do with my interests in international security. Well, for one, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, DC. And as most people know, you know, uh, that's a very cosmopolitan place and people are very interested in politics. But, but in my case, I had friends who were literally from all over the world, you know, Korea, Pakistan, you name it. I had friends uh, from these places. And uh, so, uh, you know, automatically, I guess I was interested in international affairs, but I would also say one more piece of this, which I think is quite important is that I, you know, I came of age during the height of the cold war. You know, I was, I was in middle school and high school during the eighties and the eighties was a very scary time. You know, this was the kind of the late cold war, you know, rhetoric about evil empire, the threat of nuclear war. And like many of my generation, I saw that movie, you know, the day after and had to imagine what, whether life on earth would exist. Certainly in Washington, I believe that, that if there was any kind of war with, with the Soviet union, that that would be the end for me and my family. And you know, that as I look back, I, I'm absolutely sure that had a major impact on you know, why I decided to go into this field. And uh, really, I spent my career trying to prevent wars. And uh, unfortunately, as they say, business is booming. I, I have uh, many, you know, there's so many conflicts which are already devastating, but could do even more damage to the world. So I'm, I'm doing my best, but I absolutely was, had the experience that, of growing up in Washington and thinking about these things as has, uh, you know, caused me to choose to pursue this career. Yeah. You were, you were probably close to ground zero. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely right. I mean, my father used to joke with me because I would, we would talk about it, you know, when you're young, you ask your parents these things. And my father said, you know, if there's a war with the Soviet Union, 
just bend over, put your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye. I mean, this was, and you know, he thought it was funny, but as a kid, you know, you, you, that's a pretty scary thing to contemplate. And I, I thought about it probably more than most, but it, it, you know, unfortunately we seem to be going back to those days and I think that we, we need to be doing more and uh, responsible people everywhere need to think hard about what they can do to, to prevent us from, from going back to that time. Yeah. You know, I think you and I are probably similar in age. And so I, I remember growing up when the cold war was in full swing and being scared about nuclear conflict. And I, I feel like people our age have a more serious view of what's happening in the world because we, we came to the brink, we saw what the brink looked like. And it mm -hmm. seems to me that maybe younger people don't have such a vivid feel that uh, something like that could really happen. Yeah. That's a great point, Steve. I, I, also have that sense. I mean, of course, the generation before ours saw even scarier things. You know, I've often reflected with colleagues that old, that older generation had seen the Cuban Missile Crisis. I've done a lot of work on Cuban Missile Crisis and my, you know, academic type work. I've even, I once interviewed a, a retired Soviet submarine captain who was in the Caribbean at that time and literally had his hand on a nuclear button, if you can believe it. And, but I, that generation before us was, they were kind of steeped on that and fully understood, you know, how dangerous, great power and superpower rivalry can be. And they had literally looked into the apocalypse. So uh, yeah, our generation got a taste of that. I, I don't know if we felt it as deeply as, as our parents, but, but I do, I think you're right that the generations younger than us, that seem to be much more casual about all these threats. And I, I wonder if it's because they haven't seen it up close. I mean, maybe we are in Ukraine arguably, but it's, you know, I, I think you know, we, ha we have to be extremely sober and, and realistic in these uh, very, in this dangerous world we live in. Yeah. I want to get into that in, in depth with you. And, and one of the things that struck me about your work, which I think I was telling you earlier, I've been following, I'm, I'm pretty sure at least a decade, maybe 20 years is that you're always extremely measured and serious in your analyses. And so I've always admired that. Let me accelerate you a little bit in your life. Now I, I have you down as being more focused on Russian at Harvard and then pivoting to Chinese at Princeton. So tell, tell me if I have that right and maybe elaborate a little bit on that. Do you have that right? And it, it, it was a kind of a very strange uh, transition to go through. You know, I, I took a very deep interest in, in Russian for a variety of reasons. You know, I was just, they were, a lot of us are remembering Mikhail Gorbachev these days and his incredible legacy. I just told my son that I happen to have a poster of his, of, of Gorbachev on my wall when I was in college, you know, because of course he was a great hero. And to me, he still is a hero for having really almost single-handedly ended the cold war. And we, you know, we shouldn't forget that. But so, you know, I, I was completely fascinated by that whole process, by this, you know, crazy patchwork of countries that resulted, you know, and I definitely, like many people, fell completely in love with Russian literature. So in college, so, you know, I, I alighted to Russia for a year after graduation and explored the whole country, you know, visited many post-Soviet states in Central Asia, Eastern Europe, the Baltics, so forth, and, you know, was, was really fascinated by when I went back to graduate school, I, you know, I, I kept being drawn to international security issues and it became more and more clear to me that China was the main issue and not so much Russia, of course. Now we're rethinking that these days, but so I, I, you know, I, I poked around a little bit and I had been always fascinated by China and by the Asia Pacific, but I had never, you know, I'd always thought it was sort of how to put it too 
a bridge too far, but I, you know, some colleagues, when I joined the PhD program in Princeton said, Hey, you know, you should go for it. And, and they explained to me that many graduate students actually start their Chinese late, that it's, it's not that it's re reasonably common. And off I went and studied the Chinese very intensively. And I'm so happy I did because it, it really, I think it helps me to have a better understanding of the world. You know, I'm constantly comparing the two countries, but I'm always looking beyond, you know, I do think it's a bit of a problem in regional studies, you know, where if you only study China, you think about China all the time and nothing else. So you, you tend to kind of become one dimensional. And so, so I believe these kind of dual interests are or have helped me. I would like to learn about other countries as well. I'm, you know, I'm actually studying Korea now and I, I'm certainly hoping to get to India. I've never been to India, you know, but I'm fascinated by the country and, and, you know, so many other places around the world. So I, I think we have to have regional specialists who certainly who know their country, who know their language, know their history and so forth, but they have to have a wider vision as well. I think that's, it's quite helpful. You know, I think when I, first encountered your work somewhere I read that you could read both Russian and Chinese and my ears just perked up because being Chinese American, I know there's quite a different worldview that, you know, if you're an American studying China, but you don't read Chinese or, you know, have any facility with the language, it's very tough for you to really understand how they're looking at things. And as a physicist, I had many Russian students. So I, I, I although I don't speak Russian, I, I could understand their difference in perspective. And I think that, you know, your linguistic capabilities and being able to, you know, look at original documents, original materials in those languages is extremely valuable. Well, thanks, Steve. Yeah, I, I really feel strongly that language is so critical to, to understanding the world. I think, you know, people who only, who only study English really are, you know, they, they clearly are missing out on, on a lot of uh, discussion and uh, perspective. And, you know, I'm, so I'm always, that's the first thing I say to young people is get, get some languages under your belt. You know, it's, it's no exaggeration to say that it opens up an entire new world. And, you know, unfortunately, I mean, Google translate is great. I use it every day and it's, it's, it sure is helpful, but, but you really need to do your studying as well. And, and don't want to rely on that. And you know, that's not even to say all the cultural connections that come with art and travel and all these other things. But I, you know, I'm always leery of these beltway specialists. <clears throat> that's how we would call them in Washington, DC, who, you know, who claim to know the world and yet don't know any foreign languages, haven't spent any significant time abroad, you know, sure they've been to London and Paris and so forth, maybe Berlin, but you know, the, have they really seen the world? I doubt it. And, you know, I myself am try to be very humble you know, and fully aware that there are large parts of the world that I don't understand well, but I, I'm very eager, you know, I've been to Africa, Latin America a bit. I am very eager to see more and understand more, but uh, you know, it's, it comes from my general belief that we have to, the people, people in these countries understand their situations best. And we need to listen to a whole lot of listening, a little, maybe a little less talking as Americans and let people find their own ways to, uh, solutions you know, pragmatic solutions. So I, you know, I'm always cautioning people to let's listen to what they have to say and think hard about it. And, and then, you know, we'll go from there or better yet, let's let them figure it out. Those are, those are my kind of default options for, for solving world problems, you know, because it's just stands to reason that people in these areas know, know the problems and what, what is possible and what is not. 
you know, to take an example of that, I, I first traveled to China in the early nineties and I deliberately went to Shenzhen, which at that time was nothing. It was, you know, they didn't even have sidewalks. It was all mud and buildings that were shitty buildings that they were putting up really fast. And if you've seen that, then you realize how far the country has come and how, even though the government there has all kinds of negative qualities from our perspective, the people there may be very, very grateful to the government for what it's done for them in the, in that 30 years. And similarly, I think you said you traveled in Russia after graduating from college. And if you saw the depths of post-Soviet collapse in Russia, you can understand maybe why some Russians are very grateful to Putin for restoring them to some degree to either economic or uh, economic affluence or great uh, international greatness. Absolutely. You, you nailed Steve. I think in both cases, I mean, that's absolutely critical. And I, that's one reason I urge, you know, I was just saying this to some people in my office the other day that, that any American doing foreign policy today should get themselves over to China, have a look around and not just Beijing, Shanghai, and just really try to, to get around. And I, I agree though, having seen, you know, having, I visited China first in the nineties. So, and yeah, it, the progress is simply unbelievable, extraordinary. I mean, that's a cliche already, but it's to be, you know, to see that with your own eyes is to kind of appreciate a lot of extraordinary achievements. And yeah, I mean, even in Russia where, you know, today Putin is so severely demonized and, and some of it is, is correct, of course, but, uh, you know, in general, right. The, the chaos of the. You know, my encounters with Russia started in, in late eighties and, and then I lived there a bit and, and I, I lived and, and traveled and, and saw the chaos and the hardship and, and people were hungry. People were, you know, it was a depression worse than, than our own great depression. If you can imagine how terrible that was, you know, people's lives completely upended in, in horrible ways and, and, you know, anything for Russia and many of the post-Soviet states was going to be better. And if you could put a modicum of order and get some growth going and a little bit of investment and, and have a little self-confidence, it was going to be better. So Russia in the 2000s, you know, I was shocked uh, at the progress and this, you know, rising self-confidence and so forth. So, I mean, you know, it's very sad how this has all turned out. Of course, it didn't need to be this way in my view, I strongly believe that. But yeah, if you have this this view, then you realize that it's, you know, this black, black and white version of the world is, is just garbage and we need to dispense of that right away and get a more nuanced appreciation of these different countries. And, and, you know, I've also traveled a lot around the United States and I've seen, you know, a lot of the problems and a lot of the wonderful things about our country. It truly is an amazing country. And I always am, am amazed just how, how, and impressive Americans are themselves, but, but, you know, I, I say that also knowing the darker chapters of our history and that we've got a heck of a lot of work to do at home that has nothing to do with these foreign adventures and so forth. And, and I would like to see greater focus on those problems at home. I, I think it's true that during the post-Soviet collapse, briefly, I think Putin was driving a taxi. So in principle, like maybe if you had been in St. Petersburg, you could have been picked up by Putin himself <laughs> had him drive you across town. So people should understand how far that country has come from, from what it was uh, when you were there. That's right. I mean, I, 
of course, St. Petersburg, one of the wealthiest places in Russia, but even St. Petersburg was a disaster. I remember, you know, you could hardly find a bite to eat there and, and, uh, you know, people were experiencing extreme hardship, you know, even in these cities. So now that has changed considerably, but uh, yeah, the people of Putin's generation, that generation of leaders, I mean, they saw it all. They saw, you know, all the, all the terrible things that, that came with the collapse. Now, of course, a lot of good things happened too, you know, let's, let's be clear about that. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think Russia and many of the Soviet states are, are undoubtedly better off for, for having dispensed with the USSR, but, but the, the, the overwhelming sense of nostalgia is there. And clearly it's partly at work in this whole Ukraine, Russia war that we're witnessing. Yeah, I think I think that sense of nostalgia is just something I think a Westerner just can't grasp, right? That somebody could be nostalgic, kind of forgetting all the worst parts of the USSR, but remembering the stability or at least the the pre-catastrophe, you know, goodness of life. It's just uh, well, actually, Steve, I would argue some people in our country are nostalgic for that period too, honestly. Because, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, for many Americans, the the enemy was clear. Our national mission was clear. And, you know, we, they want to go back almost to that 1980s. They forget all the horrible things about the, you know, because the, there were many things that were not right with our country in the 70s and 80s and so forth. But I mean, there are, you know, I think I, I having worked for the military for 20 years, I can tell you that they had a very, you know, military people, God bless them. And I, I salute people in uniform and, and I'm very proud of time I spent working for the Navy, but they like clarity, you know, clarity of mission, right? And, and, and so these great power rivals give a lot more clarity than, than the mess in Iraq or Afghanistan, right? Absolutely. Let, we're going to get into that, I think, in just a moment. But let me, before we finish with your education, I, I just want to ask you a little bit about your dissertation. So I have it here that your dissertation at Princeton was actually on Chinese nuclear strategy. Any, any remarks you want to give us about that? Well, yeah, well, thanks, Steve, for doing your homework. I, I, you know, so, like many people, dissertation writers, I, I, I'm kind of hoping people will forget my dissertation and leave it alone. It was published as a book by Stanford, actually, if anybody's really interested. But I, mm, I think w what I was looking at was I was, I, I really was very interested in the process of nuclear proliferation, how countries go from being, you know, not have non-nuclear status to becoming, you know, small nuclear powers to, you know, becoming large nuclear powers. And I, this process fascinated me. And of course, Russia had walked that road, the USSR, and, and so had China. And China's position in walking that road has been particularly, uh, let's say, particularly arduous, right? Because a lot of this coincided with the Cultural Revolution and so forth. So mm, China moved quite slowly to adopt a, a larger nuclear force. So anyway, I was very interested in that period of the 1960s with a lot of that instability. And I considered briefly even writing a book about the Russia-China or, or Sino-Soviet conflict in the, in the late 60s, because I had a lot of good material about that, um, rather unique material from in, you know, Chinese and Russian language sources. I did a lot of interviews and so forth. So, but you know, of course, you know, India went over the threshold, Pakistan. So, so that's a lot of interest. And of course, you know, what to do with North Korea, you know, Iran, Israel, you know, many nuclear proliferators. So, you know, the title of the dissertation sort of Valley of Vulnerability refers to that sort of early period 
when a, a nuclear state has just sort of stood up its arsenal, but yet it doesn't have a kind of robust, as we say, second strike arsenal, you know, a survivable deterrent. And I was very concerned about that period. And, you know, this turned out to be quite relevant to what's gone on with North Korea. And I actually think the New York Times asked me about my dissertation about 10 years ago. They said, Professor Goldstein, you know, should we take this up and discuss this value of vulnerability and so forth? So that was pretty, pretty interesting. But, you know, I, I, uh, I, it, I wouldn't poo poo your, your, the relevance of your dissertation work because I think right now they are, potentially expanding the Chinese maybe to thousand warheads if they haven't already. And some of the things that you looked at might be quite relevant for what we're about to live through in the next five or 10 years. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, I believe that China has sort of pulled through this, this valley of vulnerability to, to get, you know, if you will, to the promised land, you know, of, of kind of a larger nuclear stability, I think. They have robust nuclear forces. I think they are well, well on their way, you know, to, to a large and secure deterrent by large, I don't mean compared to the U S but, you know, large enough, you know, certainly. So, you know, to me, it's just kind of the lag here is that the, I think American analysts have been slow to, for various reasons. And some of them, I, I would say maybe even political reasons have been reluctant to say that China has a survivable arsenal. I think it does. And this probably occurred, this transition, if you will, probably occurred in the early 2000s. And, you know, it wasn't much talked about. And, and you know, for, for good reason, uh, U.S.-China relations were, were reasonably stable at that time. But yeah, I, I mean, I guess <laughs> I don't want to take any credit for this, but I, I do think, you know, it's conceivable that, that, that people over there were looking at the same phenomena and saying, we need to move robustly toward toward a more larger deterrent. My, my observation is the Chinese debate has gone on and on here because they were very proud of their minimal deterrent, you know, and, and many Americans admired it. Many Americans said, hey, we need to do what China did, not have this enormous force of nuclear weapons. So, but, but I, you know, of course we continue. To, I mean, I, I am worried about the nuclear dimensions of U.S.-China relations and the nuclear dimensions of Russia U.S. rivalry. So I, I don't want to act like, like this is somehow a settled matter, which is kind of implied by my dissertation. But, but I actually think, and I, I believe Ted Postal has said this, that, that, that the current situation with Russia is extraordinarily dangerous. And, and he said it was more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm not sure I agree with that, but he might be right. And that, that's a scary thing to contemplate. But, you know, by the way, coming up on a big anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis in October, I'm, I'm working on some materials related to that, but including how the Chinese view the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I also am very worried about the whole North Korea thing. I went down to the China Russia, North Korea border actually uh, two times during 27, 2018. Like I said, I've been in my career trying to prevent wars and I was very, very worried that, that we might see a war on the Korean peninsula, partly because of this, this instability that results from this, as I called it, this valley of vulnerability with North Korea. So, you know, fortunately that, that crisis passed and we hope all these crises will pass and, and that the Ukraine war will end soon, but you know. I do think there is a, unfortunately there is a new, there are nuclear shadows over a Taiwan crisis. I guess we'll get to that, but you know, I, I, I know you have a physics background and I'm, so I'm glad you're interested in nuclear strategy. It seems like, yeah. so this is a, um, unfortunately 
you know, it would have been nice to say, who needs to study nuclear strategy? I mean, that was kind of the attitude when I was doing my dissertation. Not too many people were interested in nuclear strategy. And, and that's a good thing in a way, right? <laughs> I think if you're part of, if you're from our generation and you're a physicist, you're extremely interested in nuclear strategy because of what you went through as a kid. And I, I also, because of Star Wars, so that this is another issue, which we'll discuss in a second. I'm very suspicious of people who claim they can shoot down missiles with other missiles because the record of that, if you, if you really dig into it, and obviously Ted Postel is the world expert on this, is, is, is very suspicious. I think it, it's, it's much harder than the military claims to shoot down a missile with another missile. But getting back to, the, to nuclear strategy, I'm curious if you are familiar with a book called The Nuclear Express by Stillman and Reed, which is about proliferation, but it's also, uh, I think at least one of those two actually is a bomb designer from Los Alamos. And uh, it's about some, I guess they, there was a period of openness where the Chinese would allow experts from Los Alamos to visit and, and look at their nuclear weapons program. And I think the claim in that book is that those guys could have gone to a thousand warheads some time ago and maybe did. It, I guess it's a little bit controversial. Are, are you familiar with that at all? I'm not actually, I, but I wrote it down. I would like to look at it. You know, I, I think China's nuclear arsenal is, is really opaque and people don't realize just how opaque it is. I mean, that they have never confirmed the number of warheads that they have, which is, if you think about it, is kind of extraordinary, especially when you compare it with the kind of detailed, you know, metrics and inspections so forth that go on with Russia and the U.S. We hope that will continue to go on. Yeah, I mean, I think it was about a year ago, I think that the reports came out about those large silo fields, what in Ningxia and, and in Xinjiang. So yeah, that made a lot of headlines, but I, I do agree, and maybe with these authors of Nuclear Express, that it's, it's just a big unknown. We don't know the dimensions of what China's nuclear arsenal. And, you know, I, you, you always hear people talking with certainty on this, but I, I think we had better be humble. I mean, China is a, China is not North Korea. China is a huge country with massive resources, plenty of, you know, plenty of physics talent, as you know, and it really is quite, quite within the realm of possibility that the arsenal is larger than we think. And I, I also have made this point recently, and I, I'm not trying to generate a big controversy here, but I, I am very concerned that China has probably, I suspect that they have, they're at least exploring uh, the possibility of tactical nuclear weapons. I don't, you know, of course, we have no hard evidence, but I have a lot of soft evidence to suggest that I have piles and piles of Chinese academic and strategic analyses looking at the possibility of how these would be employed, why they would be employed. And, and you know, I just cited one the other day, which discusses how that Russia this is a Chinese paper talking about how Russia is in a much more favorable position because it has very ample tactical nuclear weapons. So, I mean, you know, that, that kind of thing tends to imply that, that China is, is, is working on this. So uh, I'm very concerned that that, that might be how a uh, nuclear war over Taiwan begins because one side or the other is losing. And I think that's hit pretty, you know, that's just how war is. And, you know, in desperate circumstances reaches for, for the, you know, nuclear cudgel. So I, uh, anyway, that's, that's one of several nuclear scenarios I think we have to consider. Yeah, the tactical new question is very interesting because I notice in a lot of their missile systems, including their some of their shorter range missiles, they're very careful. Well, maybe not careful, but it, it, it is discussed openly in Chinese media and sources that this missile X is dual 
capable. In other words, it could carry a nuclear warhead as well as a conventional one. And some of these missiles are quite small. So you would think they would actually probably be tactical warheads that they're, they're putting there. So I would be surprised if they didn't have them because of the way they talk. Right. And, and we all know that, you know, miniaturization has been a trend in, in high tech for, for decades. And add to that, the Chinese are extremely well aware that, you know, probably the, if you will, the most dominant weapon system over the last 30 years has all been based on the American Tomahawk, right? Since the Gulf War. I mean, this is kind of, I mean, we're seeing it all over Ukraine. The, the Russians are using them like crazy, these caliber missiles. And China has has gone in, you know, big time for this similar capability, it can field it across its arsenal. You know, it can shoot it from submarines. They can shoot it from, you know, launchers, land-based launchers, surface ships, aircraft, you name it, can all shoot these very long-range cruise missiles effectively. And they, the Chinese also know that during the eighties, you know, these were actually, I think at least partly developed as, as nuclear systems. That is, we were going to rain down on the, the Soviet Union, all, you know, thousands of nuclear armed tomahawks. And, you know, so China knows, is well aware of this and well aware of how, how much this stirred up the late cold war. And, you know, is, is very likely, I think, has a kind of what we call, we called in the Navy, we called it T-LAM-N. You know, it's a, it's a land attack cruise missile with a nuclear warhead. And I suspect strongly China, which I'm, I'm absolutely sure China has a lot of these uh, Tomahawk-like missiles that could strike even the, even the continental United States. But I, I fear that, yes, if not already, very soon they will have the ability to put a nuclear warhead on those. Yeah, that's my feeling as well. Although no, no one can be sure about any of these things, but I, I wanted to, before we get, cause we're, it's obvious that we, we have a lot of common interests to discuss here, but that's for sure. Before we get into that, I just wanted to go through one more aspect of your career history. I think I read that you started at the Naval War College right around the time of 9-11 and that must've, so one of the things I observed during that period of time post 9-11 is that the U.S. kind of totally forgot about great power, great power or peer competition and was obviously really focused on Iraq and Afghanistan and terrorism and insurgency. And I think somewhere I saw a quote from you where you said, you know, you weren't really allowed to think about the stuff you were really interested for a long time because of the effect of 9-11. So maybe you could just talk about that. Yeah, I, I mean, the, there was a, an interesting period, you know. I, I guess I do think about that period with some sadness, you know, because I, I lived in New York city and, and, and well, you know, a lot of some, let's say some people I know were touched by the horrible events of nine 11. And I, but I also feel like many of that generation that saw that is, I guess we, we not only saw the devastation, but then we probably saw all kinds of overreactions looking, looking for terrorists everywhere in the United States, you know, and, and also. I mean, of course, some of that was justified clearly, but then the wars in the Middle East, you know, the rush to war and, and the horrible hangovers from these endless wars. And I, I mean, my simple explanation, having been at around the military during those periods was, you know, I, I just think we, we watched nine 11 and our country basically collectively went berserk in terms of just hatred and, and needing to exert our power. And, you know, of course, a lot of that uh, ended very tragically for a lot of people in Afghanistan, but for a lot of veterans who 
who are sent too many times into these war zones. And, you know, I don't need to tell this audience that so many mistakes were made, but that often happens, you know, when you, when you make decisions under duress and it's clear to me that our country was making decisions under duress. It's not an excuse, but it's just that we were enraged and made some horrible choices, you know, I'm hoping in the next part of my career that I'll be helping to make, to help our country make better choices. So, and, and, you know, to me, these endless wars kind of help create this idea of that we need to reform now, as far as like there, there, of course, when we had a common enemy of, of radical terrorists in the middle East, this brought us together to some extent with both Russia and also with China. I mean, uh, that was a very interesting period. I mean, it's people. I've said it enough times, but I'll just say it again, that, that Putin was one of the first leaders to uh, call Bush right after 9-11, and I believe offered all kinds of assistance, including, you know, the possibility of American basing in the, the post-Soviet space. And, you know, eventually Russia would even, you know, would be helping us move equipment across, across Russia, actually, as late as, you know, even, I think, 10 years ago, but even eight years ago, I think we're still moving equipment across Russia to supply our troops in Afghanistan. So, I mean, and, and Russians to this day are concerned about the radicalism in Central Asia and the Middle East too. So, you know, it, how to put it, we shouldn't need an enemy just to get along with these countries with either Russia or China, but China also, you know, has had issues with terrorism and religious radicalism and so forth. So, you know, this was kind of an interesting period, but I mean, it's true to some extent that we, uh, were not as attentive, if you will, to, you know, uh, some kind of the start of, of this great power competition, if you will. But I, you know, I'm cautious about that myself because, you know, even to this day, I think great power competition is, is really kind of vastly exaggerated as a kind of a frame for understanding the world. You know, clearly uh, things are going, but I, I agree with more or less with Fareed Zakaria, that this is really kind of the rise of the rest. It means like, you know, the U.S. was not going to be this, uh, this, you know, the lone superpower forever. And it was just inevitable that all these other countries would, you know, gradually uh, develop more military capabilities. So we shouldn't be so shocked. But, you know, the founding of our institute at Naval War College, this China Maritime Studies Institute, I mean, that was a great moment for me, of course, uh, to lead the effort. I was very honored to do so. And, you know, some people said to me, well, Lyle, you know, we shouldn't focus on China. We want to focus on the whole region. And I said, honestly, I said, are you kidding? Like China is so important. It's so, has so much potential and it's, it's not an easy thing to research, you know, this country. So we need to have this kind of singular research focus on China, not as an enemy. You know, I always maintain throughout my career at Naval War College and continue to do that, that I don't. I don't concur with people who label China as an adversary or an enemy or something like that. You know, competitors fine, but you know, Britain and France are also competitors, right? I mean, in other words, all countries compete at some level, not just in the Olympics, but in general, and that's normal and fine. So one way I push back at the Naval War College against this kind of, this, this sort of uh, sinophobia, which, which was growing in strength. And I, I really saw it grow stronger and stronger and stronger till finally I felt I really had to leave because it was so strong, but I fought back against it by insisting that, look, you know, I, I agree that mm, it's possible we could have a conflict with China. You can't rule it out. So 
our military has to be ready for that day if it comes and I hope it doesn't come, but it could. So we have to prepare in case of that day. However, and this is a big, however, that some people prefer not to remember, but I said, on the other hand, let's also keep the door open to cooperation and, you know, tried very hard to insist that we engage substantively with Chinese colleagues very frequently to try to stabilize the relationship and improve the relationship and continue to believe to this day, there are just huge areas that the U.S. and China need to cooperate on, including in the maritime domain, but not that, not only that, of course, in so many areas, you know, climate change is the most obvious one, but we need to be working with China across the board. And there are even things on the military side that we need to work with China on. For example, China is a very important contributor to global peacekeeping and peacekeeping is not an easy task, you know, and China has troops in harm's way in, in like Mali and Lebanon, Sudan. So they have a lot of experience and uh, we can even learn some things from, from China in this respect and work with them. Same is true on the counterterrorism front and, and other areas. So anyway, I, I, I've always held that up as an important objective, and I tried to uh, tried to be emphatic about that at Naval War College to take a balanced, objective approach to China, which which I think we held to for a time. But unfortunately, the waves of of uh, the waves of anti-China sentiment became larger and larger, and very hard to uh, to fight against. So, you know, I, I decided that recently, you know, I, I could do more outside the government. So that's why I decided to leave. Got it. In, in 2015, you wrote a book called Meeting China Halfway, How to Diffuse the Emerging U.S.-China Rivalry. It sounds like you got some pushback from your colleagues at the War College when you wrote that. Well, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to talk too much internal politics or you know, inside baseball here, but I would say in general, most people at Naval War College and others I met in the military were at least open to hearing my perspective. And, you know, some would occasionally say, Hey, you know, Goldstein, we need you to kind of play devil's advocate, or at least, you know, raise some questions about a more kind of aggressive pursuit of rivalry with China. So you know, so for most of my career, I felt very welcome, but toward the end, it became clear to me that my ideas were being, you know, consciously suppressed by the college and by the U.S. government. And so, you know, it became clear to me that it was time to leave and I'm very thankful and honored to have worked for the Navy for 20 years. But I think I can now do more, you know, to help U.S. policy by being on the outside. <laughs> Do, do you feel like in the seven years since that book was published that we sort of followed the worst case trajectory that you were worried about in the book? Hmm. Well, thanks for looking at it, Steve. Uh, I, in some ways, yes. Yeah. In some ways, I think my, my predictions are borne out. You know, I, I've always held that, that the human tendency, I, I think it comes down to not physics, but chemistry. I think it's, it's in our brain chemistry to, you know, to be xenophobic, to circle the wagons, to, you know, as humans, we survive in tribes. And so everything becomes about the tribe. We're very tribal. And, you know, that's uh, a very uh, powerful, uh, provides powerful energy for nationalism. And so, so 
the, the natural state of human beings is to basically to fight against each other, to circle up in tribes and, and, and do battle. You know, that's gone on for millennia. So uh, it's not weird what's happening. It's actually natural. But we, you know, conscious, we have to use our reason and uh, conscious ability to reason, you know, in the same way that we can reason out physics and, and make these incredible equations and send people to the moon and so forth can use the same reason to stop these what are kind of natural human tendencies toward rivalry and war and we have to do this otherwise you know literally the future of the planet is at stake and not just from a nuclear weapons point of view but also from a kind of climate point of view and as we're seeing in ukraine that even uh even that war which is non-nuclear but is is uh, the destructiveness of of conventional weapons these days such that you you know we're literally seeing whole countries being destroyed. So we need to find a better way. And, you know, that means putting ideology aside and seeking pragmatic solutions. And we can do this. We've done it before. You know, if, if people would just look back at our leaders during most of the Cold War were very, very careful and managed the competition. And, you know, at various critical points, you know, Berlin crises, Vietnam crises, Cuban crises, Middle East crises, again and again, chose to de-escalate. And we need to, you know, take that example and, you know, try to stop this Cold War in the tracks before it becomes a hot war between the great powers. Yeah, so you, you mentioned that the Cold War leaders, you know, tried to keep a lid on things. My read of what happened in Ukraine is that we could have prevented this war. The United States could have prevented this war, but did not. I'm curious how you feel about that. I feel the same way. I, I agree with you. It's very, it's very painful for me personally because, you know, I visited many of these places. My ancestors from way back come from Kiev and Odessa and places like that and Poland. So, you know, it's utterly horrific, catastrophic. You know, I, I keep telling people, like, you know, think of all the orphans, you know, from this war. Just reflect, you know, how their lives are changed by all this, it's, you know, anyway. But yes, like, if we go back to, uh, you know, uh, well, we could go back decades, but we could go back just to November 2021 and see, you know, I'm amazed that I haven't seen any journalists go back through uh, these meetings between Putin and, and Biden to see, you know, what. What was missed? What, where did we go wrong? Why didn't we meet Russia halfway, if you will, if you to take the title of my book? And, and I have, by the way, considered writing a book kind of meeting Russia halfway because something like that is absolutely necessary. Of course, I'm 10 or 20 years too late. You know, I was always against NATO expansion. I knew from my time there that this was a, a hot button issue that would drive the Russians crazy. George Kennan had it absolutely right in 1999, I believe. He said that this would, you know, be the fire that lights Russian nationalism and you will be back in a Cold War very soon. And, we, you know, we were we were back in a Cold War, you know, maybe as early as 2008. And, you know, now the Cold War threatens well, has gone hot and could get hotter. And it's, uh, it's incredibly dangerous and nobody suffered more than the Ukrainians. But this was all, in my view, quite preventable. I think Ukraine could have been a neutral state. Wiser leaders should have, should have seen this. And, and by the way, some neutral straight states are incredibly strong. You know, does anybody think Switzerland is a weak state? Absolutely not. 
So there's no reason that, uh, you know, Ukraine could have been a very strong neutral state. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the leaders in Washington and Kiev chose a different course. It's not to absolve uh, Moscow and the Kremlin of plenty of blame. I mean, they clearly are seeing demons, like I said before, feeling that kind of nostalgia of former times, wanting to throw their weight around, exaggerating their own, you know, military prowess, all the above, you know. And, and doing terrible things. And Russia is suffering horribly. You know, when I talked about those orphans, many of them are on the Russian side of the line, of course, too. So, you know, this is a horrible outcome for everybody. And, and most people understand that. So we need to get back to diplomacy. And I, I truly am shocked that our, uh, that the U.S. government is not, I mean, hopefully behind do closed doors, they are, you know, talking about diplomatic solutions, but I don't see much evidence of that. The, the Russians, at least if you take them at face value, say that they're not in contact at all with West, with U.S. Uh, diplomats. And so if it's happening, it's happening, you know, in some very hidden way. Yeah, I agree. I, it's so depressing. I <laughs> lately tried not to think about it, but it's, yes, I, I, you know, I, I do think, you know, the, the people who successfully carried out the Cold War won and successfully kept it from blowing up. You know, the, the Kennedys, Trumans, Eisenhowers, these incredible leaders, I think they would be horrified to see that we are kind of, you know, just casually watching this horrible war unfold and, and you know, playing with nuclear genie in very uncertain ways. You know, say nothing of what's going on at this nuclear plant, these kind of crazy episodes. This is just, to me, a risk-taking that's almost unimaginable. Yeah, all around. But, we, we, you know, we need a much more mature leadership that understands the, the histories and the cultures here and can help to bring about peace again. That's, we need to get back to peace somehow. And it's going to be painful. You know, compromise is always exceedingly painful. In the nuclear era, we we have to do this, but we should also do this on humanitarian grounds too. So I, I know you've had a long interest in Russia-China relations, and I imagine you must have some thoughts about how the Ukraine conflict now is going to affect China-Russia relations for the rest of the century. Yeah, I've been working on that a lot. And in theory, I'm writing a book on the subject, but it's, I must say it's coming quite slowly right now. And the part of it is I do think the war has has uh, put us in a rather new situation, but more or less, you know, I've argued for years that people are underestimating this relationship, that Russia and China are two powers that see eye to eye much more than, than people realize that, that people often exaggerate the uh, kind of cultural divide. Uh, there is a cultural divide, but you know, it's not as severe as, as many people realize. And in fact, as, as Gil Rosman, one of my mentors noted that there's so many things about Russian and Chinese identity and their experience over the last century or two centuries, really, in development as states, both China and Russia, that they they really have a lot in common. And, and that is, is a pretty strong foundation for the relationship. Moreover, you know, as I studied the Sino-Soviet conflict in the 60s, it became more and more clear to me that a lot of this sort of developed as a peculiarity of Maoism. And, you know, we could talk about Mao for a long time, but, but I do think at some level he, you know, he just wanted to kind of radically change things up and push forward on this kind of new direction. But, but it was a, 
kind of an anomaly, I would say. And if you look across the sweep of centuries of Russia-China relations, that it's actually these two countries, even with a very long border, you know, they get along pretty amicably. I mean, there have been a couple of episodes, but never has there been kind of large-scale warfare. So that's pretty pretty shocking, actually, when you look across the sweep of Eurasia history. <laughs> so anyway, my, my view is that they are, they are getting closer and closer. I think, you know, while, while it's true, the worst, if you will, from the Western point of view, the worst is not, you know, of course, the worst would be if we saw Chinese tanks rolling around in Donbass or something like that, or, or you know, a Chinese airborne division, you know, getting ready to fight in Kherson or something. That is not in the cards. It's never been in the cards. I don't, you know, I, I don't think I don't think Russia wants that, and China certainly doesn't. So, you know, at some level, it, it, people have pointed out that there are clear limits to this relationship. And yes, that that is true, and uh, but but I, I don't think I don't think Russia wants uh, China China to be overtly military involved. Really, you know, Putin wants this is his war, and he he's wants to keep it that way. And nor nor does uh, China is China looking for a, a Russian airborne division or two to land in Taiwan. So, but if you look at the relationship as a kind of holding this kind of strong ballast and, and um, giving a lot of moral support and material support, I think maybe some of it also kind of hidden. I, I suspect that there's a lot of things moving that we don't necessarily know about and uh, that they certainly benefit from uh, trading ideas and technologies and doctrines and so forth on the military side too. We're seeing, I think just this week, Vostok 22 is going off and that will continue. So yeah, I see the relationship strengthening quite a bit. And uh, I mean, this in a way also reflects some policy misjudgments in Washington too, I would say, because I mean, e even a, I think most realists would say, well, the logic of conflict between the US and Russia is such that we probably should try to improve our relationship with China, right? You don't want to antagonize both of these great powers at once. I and mean, yet we haven't seen major improvement in in U.S.-China relations, so that that I think is a mistake. I think we could have done more here, but we seem to be almost determined to push the two together. Now, again, that makes for convenient policy papers in Washington. You know, the so the Russia-China slash North Korea-Iran threat, right? Put it all together, and you've got you know some nice budgetary requests there. But you know, this is no way to run run a diplomacy in a very complicated world. I, I don't know, Lyle, if you ever played uh, like war games or simulation games when you were growing up, but to me, one of the big consequences of this is that, you know, what, what, what was in the past, one of China's main vulnerabilities, which is having to import so much of its energy could be partially solved through a tighter relationship with Russia. And so the second order effect of, if you say there's a Taiwan invasion, the U S probably would act to blockade energy to China from the Middle East. But if they can minimize the impact of that by being able to rely on Russian energy, that that changes, I think, their own risk calculus for the the sort of medium term consequences of a Taiwan conflict. Yeah, I think you're right on, Steve. That's that's exactly correct. And I think some Chinese strategists have have made that calculation. There, you know, I think it's fair to say that China has been hurt a bit by the war. It's made its life more complicated. The the whole Belt and Road faces some headwinds now. I think we can say because of the the war uh, complicating things. So this is not you know some unalloyed victory for China. On the other hand, yeah, there there are some things that China can be happy about, and one of them is as you pointed out that as Russia 
orients a lot of its trade toward the east. Well, this, you know, this really, in a way, is China's dream that that Russia, this kind of storehouse of of natural resource riches, which it really is in every respect. I mean, gas, oil, timber, water, you name it, you know, all the metals and everything else, even on the agriculture side, I think Russia has been showing more and more promise. So, you know, all if all of these resources are flowing to China, that, you know, in, in that this is a win-win, as China would say, for for China and Russia. You know, Russia, China has a lot that it can give to Russia, obviously, in terms of tech and manufacturing prowess. And and I think Russians are starting to realize that Russians often were among the more suspicious partakers in the in the Belt and Road and so forth. They would tended to be slower than other countries in kind of taking up Chinese offers. Well, those days are over, you know, now the relationship is tightening and uh, I think we're going to see a lot of synergies here. And as we put the pandemic in the rearview mirror, I think you're going to see Russia-China trade go from, you know, some whatever, 100, 150 billion to pick up really quite a lot. And, you know, for Russia, there, there can be some benefits. I think Putin and others are seeing that as they pivot to the east, they had already talked about a pivot to the east already a decade ago, but now they can really... Now, now the pivot to the East is in earnest, right? Because they have to pivot to the East. They have no partners in the West. And so this has been a kind of a transformation. Even Russians are talking about this being kind of like a cleansing, you know, where they're cleansed of this kind of worship of Europe that they had for for decades or centuries even. So that that's an interesting phenomenon. I'm, I'm sure Russia will continue to, you know, it's that double-headed eagle looking East and West. So I, I don't think that's going away, but at least tentatively the, the look east is much, much more uh, powerful than it used to be. And yeah, I think China benefits. I mean, just to take your military scenario a little one step further, a scenario I am think is kind of realistic is Russia. You know, Russia, China's in a position now to ask Russia for favors, right? Because Russia needs all this stuff from China, needs a lot of help during the war and so forth. So China could easily ask Russia to threaten Japan, say, and, and Japan, Russia tensions are growing. And in the, in the week or two before a Taiwan crisis, Beijing could, could ask the Kremlin to put on some kind of, you know, not attack Japan, but, you know, make it look as if Japan is under major threat from Russia or something. And, and then that might cause Japan to be much more cautious in a Taiwan scenario. I think something like that could unfortunately be in the cards because as we all know, Japan, you know, whether Japan gets really involved in the Taiwan scenario, that that is a key variable in China's calculus, I think. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, as you know, there are still territorial disputes over some northern islands between Russia and Japan. And Japan is very, in my analysis, Japan is very vulnerable in these circumstances because I believe 90% of energy and over 50% of their food calories are imported. And once things go hot in the naval arena, how are they going to get that energy and food? I think the Russians and Chinese could easily cause food and energy prices to just skyrocket in Japan because what commercial shipping companies want to send their ships through a war zone, especially when you can target those ships with inexpensive missiles from thousands of miles away. Yeah. Uh, Japan is under major threat here because I think it can... You know, the United States will always 
move to bail out Japan, I think, and get the ships to Japan that need to go there. But I agree, you know, for the, for the short term and in a crisis, it could, could be ugly. I mean, let's not forget, you know, Prime Minister Abe, who tragically was assassinated recently, but he, I disagree with a lot of his recommendations and he was a very, he was very hard line on China, unfortunately, which I do think was a big mistake, but he, he was the opposite on Russia. He, you know, for whatever reason, he sought again and again and again to reach out to Russia. And a lot of people left a lot of Americans wondering what the heck he was doing. But I myself thought he was quite wise in that respect because uh, you're right that, that, I mean, Japan, the, you know, Japan is better off if, if Russia and China are not coupled so closely. And moreover, if Japan, if Russia has a stake in Japan's future, which it did quite recently and, you know, closing those doors between, you know, these tensions in in Russia Japan relations could could impact the whole wider region, and I think to is a, a real detriment to Japan. So, uh, you know, I I, I think uh, people in Tokyo need to think very hard about that situation and and realize that a kind of multipolarity is probably better for Japan than than this tight bipolarity which we're seeing develop. Uh, on this issue of the U.S. Navy being able to keep shipping lanes open. I think the technology has changed a lot since, you know, what people are normally thinking about World War II when they think about this and convoys of ships, maybe fighting, you know, U-boats or something. Now, because of ubiquitous satellite coverage, we can track all these commercial ships in real time. So that means we can hit them very easily. They don't have any missile defense. So I don't see how convoys, a determined enemy that wants to just interdict shipping using missiles to Japan could easily do it, I think. I think this is a a particular technical aspect of warfare that isn't well understood by most analysts right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you're you're making a very interesting point, and that's a scenario I haven't thought that much about, you know, that that is how how do supplies get to Japan. I guess my view is, like, in any kind of scenarios that we're talking about, that China's going to use most of its missiles right there, right in the war zone to targeting warships and so forth and have probably limited ability to really fight it out in mid Pacific, you know, or to the east of Japan, so forth. So that's why I I feel like the U S Navy and the Japanese maritime self-defense force would be, would adequately be able to get those ships to Japan from the United States and, 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 you know, at least Japan from being in a completely dire state straight, partly knowing that most of the heavy combat would happen to the sort of Southwest, you know, in the Taiwan direction or something. But it's an interesting point. I I hadn't really thought that scenario, Steve. If your model of the threat to ships, you know, commercial shipping to Japan is from a submarine attack or close range ship attack, the U.S. and the Japanese Navy, I think, have the muscle to defeat that. The problem is that Unless we go to a level where all satellites are taken out, and th- that would create a permanent problem because it would, it would create a layer of debris in the atmosphere that would make all space activities for the rest of you know, the future of humanity problematic. So I think that's going to be a big step for people to really start taking out each other's satellites. And if, mm. if you don't take out the other side's satellites, we can see these ships in real time. We can hit them in real time. And that, that just has never been the case until you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay, I also, I don't think, I don't see China really having a, a need to 
cut Japan off like that. Although, again, you, you make some interesting points here. And, and if, if China were to build up its any ship ballistic missiles, you know, my guess now is they're mostly targeted at aircraft carrier groups, not, you know, at, at say merchant ships and so forth, you know, just in terms of the numbers. But you're right. I mean, technically, it could be, could be done. By the way, you know, mines, sea mines were used extremely effectively against Japan in World War II. So don't, you know, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. Of course, China has studied that example very well. So, you know, but th- this is on kind of how to put it on China's sort of rungs of escalation. And if Japan is doing things they really don't like, I agree with you that they may pull these levers against Japan that that maybe not everybody has thought through, including me here. You know, th- these are interesting points, though, Steve. Yeah. I, uh, I'm curious what you thought of this CSIS war games. I don't know if you followed these. I, I don't even know if they're, they might still be ongoing. They were, they were going on for several weeks, I think, analyzing various Taiwan invasion scenarios. Yeah. I mean, I'm a little leery of saying too much about these because I, 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 there've been some kind of scattered reports in the press. I, I think I saw that they were going to report out in December, you know, for wider dissemination, something more, um, comprehensive. Well, I mean, the, my first takeaway though, is that they, they report, you know, they say that the U S would win, but it would be incredibly costly. I think that I saw numbers like, you know, as many as 700 U S aircraft destroyed two carriers down, you know, sunk 20 surface ships. Well, I mean, at some level, yes, that is the level of destruction I'm talking about, but I, I, Myself, and I haven't generally participated in this games, in these games, but I, I'm aware, you know, some of it have been reported in public and, and, you know, you can look up a former assistant secretary of state who was a or secretary of defense uh, at Rand. I think David Akmanek talked a lot about these games and said, you know, the U.S. repeatedly loses these games. So for, you know, I, I think somebody at the Pentagon has gotten smart and said, it just doesn't look good. We better produce some games that where we win. So I, <laughs> I, I do actually think some of that might be going on here, but I mean, you know, just taking on it, it's face value. Those are huge losses. I mean, 700 aircraft, two carriers and 20 surface ships. What could possibly justify that? I don't think Taiwan justifies that. Not nearly, certainly not from a point of view of U.S. national interests or vital national interests. But to me, I must say, Steve, that I think that may be optimistic. Like, I think it could be much worse than that. I think you may have to double those numbers. And, you know, by the way, they didn't talk about any submarines lost, but actually submarines would probably be, to my estimate, probably be the, a lot of the fighting would be done by U.S. submarines. And I do think we would suffer losses, unfortunately, because China has been working that problem very, very hard. I don't know who would win this war. I think it's possible either side would win. Quite possible that China would win this war, unfortunately. And, you know, I, I'm worried about catastrophic losses. And I guess from that CSIS game, the, I would call those losses catastrophic. But I, again, I, I think they could be two, three, four times worse than that. So, and boy, I think some of the assumptions that I read in this game were, were not on point. For example, the rendering that I read had U.S. Marines on the ground in Taiwan from day one of the fighting. I don't see that. And I think China would be doing everything it could to make sure that that this war starts before any U.S. soldiers or Marines are on the ground in Taiwan. And, and to me, everything China ha- has in terms of planning and initiating the war w- would be aimed 
at that very fact because they don't want to fight Americans in Taiwan. They want to separate Taiwan from American assistance and so forth. So, you know, I think so, so I don't know exactly what the conditions were exactly for the game, but that assumption that there are U.S. troops in Taiwan on day one, I think is very, very problematic. And I, I, I suspect some of the other assumptions are too. Another assumption I would question also is they said, well, no use of nuclear weapons. Well, that's very nice, but we all know that, you know, these are two nuclear powers and nobody knows what happens when two nuclear powers go at it for serious. So again, that's a huge leap of faith taken in this game. And I think Americans better read this critically for sure. Yeah, it's very, very dangerous. I mean, can you imagine 700 U.S. aircraft and two carrier groups taken out without at least significant risk of escalation to nuclear weapons? It seems very, that seems like a very strong assumption to me. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I mean, but this is, com this is quite common with these type of games from, from what I could tell. So I, I have a report coming out with defense priorities, I think, that will try to establish a more objective look at, at the way this would unfold. But and it's quite a bit darker than, than the CSIS report. You know, I, there was a story just in the New York Times today, actually. It was in the print version today. It came out, I think, a week ago in the electronic version. But it basically said, oh, China does not have the ability to quickly conquer Taiwan just said this sort of matter of fact, you know, casually in the, in the second paragraph, I don't agree with that. I, I think China might well have the capability today to conquer Taiwan swiftly, as they said in the, I, in the paper. I, I uh, actually agree with, I, I, I agree with you, Lyle. I, I don't think we can know for sure, but I, I think there's a, certainly a possibility that that could be the case. But uh, what, that, that's not the conventional wisdom, but I, I think I, I, I must say, I think people are not watching uh, the Chinese military carefully enough in this is a military that is making very rapid strides on all fronts in terms of equipment and doctrinal development. And I, I think they, you know, I mean, the fact is something the U.S. has lacked. You know, we're, we're involved here, there, and everywhere around the world. There's kind of lack of focus. They don't, they don't suffer that problem in China. I mean, they have a, the PLA is more focused on this problem, has been for decades. Uh, it's not half a century or more. And you know, you can bet that they are solving these problems one by one. Yeah. One aspect of this, it's seldom discussed, but it hits kind of close to home for me because my, you know, my, my wife is from Taiwan. I have a lot of relatives in Taiwan, in mainland China as well. But one of the things is that they're sort of determined in Taiwan not to think about this because the whole thing is unpleasant and they just want to kick the can down the road. But, you know, a lot of, the military in Taiwan are descendants of KMT people. My, my family are KMT people, and um, they don't really want to fight China. They, they view the, the, a lot of them have the view that the communists have a certain amount of legitimacy for returning Chinese civilization to the world stage. And I would not be surprised if there's a quick end to this war because the military in Taiwan deposes the civilian government and just surrenders. I would not be surprised if that happens. And I don't think very many analysts would seriously consider that as a possibility. Yeah, I, I, I'm not 
very expert. You know, I, I'm not, I, they don't, I don't have a, a super deep understanding of Taiwan politics, but from what I can gather, I, I have, I'm quite aware of this phenomena of which you discuss. And I, you know, just one quick anecdote, when I was at Naval War College, I would often have a Taiwan student in my class. And I remember very, you know, the stark moment where I invited the Taiwan student to kind of address the his peers, you know, who are Americans in the room and, and to tell us what his perspective was on the whole, you know, on this developing tensions and situation. And he said that he, he, you know, he started out his remarks by saying he is deeply committed to, to Taiwan's unification with mainland China. And he said he believed very emphatically that Taiwan was part of China. And he actually criticized the current, who I think, you know, at that time, um, I forgot the name of the uh, president. What's that? Oh, sorry. Uh, and he said, you know, he said he regards him as a traitor because he does not share this viewpoint. And he moreover said that all his colleagues in the Taiwan Navy feel the same way as him. And I remember, you know, the entire class was speechless, you know, because Americans had never had any exposure to this kind of strain of thinking in Taiwan, which, as you point out, is is not so strange. I mean, I, I believe it's probably less now than it was then. But but I think, yes, I think people in Taiwan are divided and it, it's a it's a very tough subject. And, you know, I, I think you're exactly right that it's very hard in this situation for Taiwan people to think about this in an objective way. And, and really the default is just kind of denial. Let's not think about it. And that's what I've understood is, is sort of the, uh, how most of the discussion goes, that is a, you know, a non-discussion, which, which is, is very dangerous for the Island because they kind of presume, well, let's just trust in uncle Sam and everything will turn out. Okay. And that, that to me, that that's kind of what Kiev did and look, everything's not okay. I, I would say I've met almost zero Taiwanese who have thought seriously about what this conflict would look like and, and how Taiwan would defend its, uh, defend itself. They really just don't want to think about it. And the story that you gave about the naval officer from Taiwan rings entirely true to me. Most of those people think the greens, the pro-independence people in Taiwan are traitors. And so the, I don't think the military really supports the current civilian leadership policies in Taiwan. So it could be an interesting thing. And of course, these are the very people that, you know, people, that we're, you know, in theory that, that w would be asked to sacrifice their lives, you know? Yes. In the, so, I mean, uh, yes, I agree that this may turn out very, very differently and it's hard to know, you know, a lot of people say, well, this is the ultimate question is, you know, how hard Taiwan fights for its own, to secure its own independence. And, and it's kind of unknowable. And, and, you know, I do think people would admit that in, in the case of Ukraine, a lot of people were wrong on this, but I don't know. I don't think China is counting on that. You know, China is expecting a uh, brutal fight and it would be a huge destruction. Uh, I think that unfortunately that's one of their lessons from Ukraine is that if you fight with one heart, one hand behind your back, then you, you open yourself up to defeat. And so I'm, I'm very fearful. Uh, and, and here's, you know, I think I should probably get going, but I, I think that the, a lot of people don't realize a lot of Americans don't realize just how wide the scope is for kind of political negotiations on this issue for compromise, creative compromise, you know, and, and these are not adequately explored. I mean, you know, this is what academics think tankers and, and yeah, even government diplomats should be really focused on because 
with some creativity, we can, we can get around this. I really think we can. Both sides just need to be a bit flexible. And, uh, you know, I think cooler heads can, can prevail and, and we can be pragmatic. I mean, after I, I come back to the, uh, equal you know, one country, two systems, which everybody says is dead, but you know, please tell me a better way out of this. And, uh, actually that it, it, it is, I know there's a lot of hard feeling coming out of Hong Kong and so forth, but I think we have to realize that that that's what we're stuck with. We just, we're going to have to think creatively and try to make that work. Great, Lyle. I know you're you're we're heading up against a time deadline, so I'm gonna reluctantly let you go and just tell you I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. I hope we can maybe do it again sometime in the future. Yeah, it was my pleasure, Steve. I think we could have talked for a few more hours, but hopefully we'll do it again sometime. And I I really enjoyed this discussion and look forward to talking in the future. Absolutely. We're recording this right on the Friday of Labor Day weekend, and Lyle's got to go with his family on a wonderful trip. So. I'm going to let him go and sign off. Thanks, everyone. And I will put in the show notes links to all kinds of great stuff that Lyle's written over the years. So thanks a lot for listening.